it is good to have you here worship with us today. Take your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, as we move toward Easter here in just two weeks, I want to share some messages as we lead up to Easter Sunday morning. Uh, I am excited about Easter this year. As Jeff said last year, I preached to an empty auditorium. I preached to a camera, and uh, there were four of us. That's exciting, i got to tell you. It's really, uh, really hard to look out there and see nobody and talk as if there's somebody out there. Uh, but yeah, the Lord used uh, that time, and I'm thankful for that. And, and let me just say also, if you are watching online and you have uh, been watching from home for the last year or more uh, and considering coming back, Easter Sunday morning is a good time to do that. And uh, I don't want to be too uh, obtrusive about it. But let me just be honest, if, uh, if you're home watching and you go out to other venues, you don't have any problem going out to eat and hanging around with people there, you'll be in church on Sunday. So love to see you come back. Now, if you're just hibernating home and you don't go anywhere, God bless you. And uh, hopefully you'll get your shot and we'll get everything squared away and you can come back. But listen, I'm looking forward to Easter Sunday and having people here to sing and worship the Lord together. And uh, I was thinking while I was just sitting there, there is nothing uh, like fellowship, like coming together in person and being able to talk to one another and encourage one another in the Lord and share testimonies from the week or from life. Uh, there's no encouragement like that, and you can't get that on the TV. So uh, let me encourage you to be with us on Easter. Take your Bibles, Isaiah 53. I want to spend just a few minutes this morning in our time and think about uh, Isaiah's prophecy of the coming of Christ, his first advent, and really talks about Jesus and the first advent uh, in terms of the suffering servant, of the one who would come the first time. Now, you know Jesus uh, came the first time, took on humanity, and uh, lived a sinless life here, and came with the express purpose of dying on the cross to be the payment for sin. That was his ministry. That's why he came, to serve, to give himself uh, as, a, as an offering to pay for our sin. Now, Jesus did that. Now, the resurrection that we will celebrate in two weeks is a validation of the ministry of Christ. Think about this for a moment. He did all that he did. He, he, he walked a humble life and was rejected of his own people. Uh, in the end, rejected by everyone, even his disciples uh, forsook him and walked away. And he went to the cross all alone and he died alone on the cross and he took the sin of the world and he became sin for you and me. Paid the price, the Father accepted that. Now the, the resurrection that we're gonna celebrate in two weeks is really the victory event of the earthly ministry of Christ. It is the victory event of everything that he did. The resurrection does two things. One, it validates who he said he is. Jesus came and said he's the Messiah. Jesus came and more than once declared that he's God, he's the I am. And people rejected him for that. And the religious leaders accused him of blasphemy. Listen very carefully. Only God could come out of the grave. Only God can conquer death. Only God can do what Jesus Christ did. So the resurrection uh, validates all that he said about himself as far as who he is. And secondly, the resurrection validates that his offering on the cross was accepted of the Father as a vicarious suffering for you and me. By the Father raising him from the dead, bringing him out of the grave, the Father was satisfied with his sacrifice that he made for you and me today. 
If you're a born-again child of God, if you've been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved because Jesus came out of the grave. You're saved because he's alive today at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for all who call on his name. You're saved because we have a living Savior, not one who died. So Isaiah begins to reveal that to us. And what's interesting, Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus was born. So great prophecy, great revelation of God. Look at verse one as Isaiah begins in Isaiah 53, verse one. He said, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now his first statement in Isaiah 53 is a complaint. He's complaining, he says, Lord, who's, who's believing us? Who's listening to us? In other words, Isaiah said, I'm saying what you told me to say, as all godly prophets did. God gave them the message and they repeated the message. And Isaiah said, Lord, I am, I am saying what you told me to say. I'm telling them about you and about sin and about uh, turning from their sin, but nobody's listening. Nobody's hearing. He said, who has believed our report? I would suggest also that Isaiah's heart was heavy because nobody was listening. You see, I think you know this is true. If you're a born again child of God and you meet somebody who's lost and you begin to share with them and you see the blindness in their eyes and in their mind and you see the lostness in them, it grieves your heart a little bit, doesn't it? Because you want so much for them to be saved. You want so much for them to know the joy and the peace that you and I have in Christ, but they don't get it. And so there's grief there. There's a heaviness of heart, particularly if it's a loved one, if it's somebody in your own family who you want to win to Christ and they just keep saying, no, thank you, no, thank you. Maybe like Isaiah, we say, Lord, who's believed our report? Who, who is listening to us? And the same is true in society today. I read an article. Uh, I, I found it, you know, sometimes when you dig through your paperwork, you find things that you read or he had, I found an article 10 years ago that was written in a local newspaper. And it was a religious article and a guy was basically attacking Christianity. And I, and I reread part of it this week and my heart was grieved for him. I don't even know if the guy's still alive. 10 years ago, he wrote this article. We're preaching the gospel and we're sharing, we're putting it online and, and, and it goes all over the world. And we get feedback from people who watch it in states and places who can never be here, who watch online. And the gospel's going out and we're, we're telling people at every opportunity, personally, as we move around society and online and in the ministries here, we're telling people, look, we're all sinners and you need a savior. And Jesus loves you and he wants to save you. And your sin will cost you everything in eternity. Listen, God loves you. Jesus came here to die for you. And we might say with Isaiah, Lord, who's believed our report? Who's listening? Because I'm going to tell you something. If you look at the statistics, the numbers of people, the numbers of people who are believers in Jesus Christ is small compared to the number of people that live on the planet. And we proclaim and we testify. And listen, in, in the 21st century, the gospel is proclaimed in the world like never before in the history of humanity. And we've got the internet. I had a blog for a while some years ago, and I had people in China conversing with me about things I wrote on a blog. When in human history have you been able to do that? To go online and to be able to talk to people around the world, answer questions, and I still get, you know, ask the pastor on our website. People send me questions on email, and that's fine. I might not get to you the day you send it to me, but I'll get back to you. You send a thing to me. Listen, the gospel's going out like never before in, in, in human history, and yet, who's believed our report? 
Who's believing the testimony? Who's hearing? Think about two things with relation to sharing the gospel. Number one, no matter how many people reject it, it's still true. No matter if the majority of the world says, we're not accepting you Christians and no, listen, it's still true. You're not gonna change the truth by rejecting it. You know, I can, I can tell a, a kid two plus two is four when he's learning math, and he can tell me, I don't believe that. Well, it doesn't change the fact two plus two is four, okay? Doesn't change the fact. I could say all day long, the world's flat, it ain't round. Guess what, it's still round. We live on a round planet, okay? So what I'm saying is no matter if I reject the truth, it doesn't change the truth. If I say I don't believe something and it's true, it doesn't change the fact that it's true. The same applies to the gospel. The majority does not make right. The majority of the world can reject Jesus. And like Isaiah said, Lord, who's believed our report? What I'm saying to you is don't be discouraged. You have the words of life in Jesus Christ. You have the words of life that people need to hear. And if they keep rejecting it, keep telling them. You say, well, I tell them all the time, but they don't listen. So tell them one more time. Tell them two more times. Tell them three more times. Tell them as many times as you have opportunity to tell them because you never know when it'll be the time the Holy Spirit pricks their heart. And they go, you know what? Never heard you really say that before. And you go, huh, I've been saying it for 10 years, but okay, uh, I'm glad now you're listening. You never know when that time's gonna come. So what I'm saying is you just keep telling them. I had an older brother that I'm not sure was saved when he died of alcoholism. And I sat in his front yard. I can't tell you how many times in Somerville, South Carolina, him drinking himself into a stupor and me trying to talk to him before he got so drunk he couldn't hear me. But I kept doing it. Every time I went there, I kept doing it. Why? Because he needs Jesus. Just because he rejected doesn't make it untrue. Listen, Isaiah said, Lord, nobody's listening, but Isaiah didn't stop preaching. Secondly, I think like Isaiah, we have a heavy heart when we look at society. I don't know how you respond to this. When I, when I hear of things that happen in the world, and I hear of evil things and you know, mass shootings and uh, mass murderers and serial killers and uh, human trafficking and, and all the stresses and struggles uh, of ethnicity between the colors and, and people just hating one another, does it not give you a heavy heart? Doesn't it grieve you? I mean, it touches your heart and you say, God, if people just knew Jesus and were born again and had a new heart on the inside, they wouldn't act like that on the outside. And see, the world doesn't understand that Jesus is the answer. But you can't be discouraged. Don't give up. You got to keep telling people and you got to keep living the example. Now, Isaiah also says here in verse one, he said, there's no excuse to his people. He said to his people, Israel, there's no excuse for your dullness. There's no excuse for your lack of attention. He said, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What he's saying by that is God himself, Israel, he's speaking to his people, has more than revealed himself to be mighty on your behalf. He's more than revealed himself to be your God and to care about you and to love you and you're not paying attention. The arm of the Lord means his power. It means his ability to do things that they see. I mean, for crying out loud, he delivered them out of Egypt with miracles that nobody could do. They walk across the Red Sea on on dry land. God gives them the Ten Commandments on, on the Mount, gives them to, to Moses, brings them into the land. And think about it, even in Isaiah's day, they're going into 70 years of captivity. At the end of that 70 years, when the Persians conquered the Babylonians and took Babylon and, and the new kingdom came, God, listen, and as Ezra, 
chapter one, the first six verses. God himself, Jehovah God, moved the heart of Cyrus the king, a pagan king, moved his heart because Cyrus gives the testimony to allow the people to go back into the land. Isaiah is saying to them, God has more than shown himself faithful to you. So you are without excuse. You are without excuse. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We could say the same thing to this generation today. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To everybody, to everybody. Say, well, how has God revealed himself? Well, there's many ways, but I'll give you four that you can't get over. You can't get over it, you can't get under it, and you can't go around it. Here are four of them. One of them is creation. Creation, the Bible says, declares the glory and the majesty and the power of God. You can't stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon and not think about God. You can't stand on the top of a mountain in Colorado and look out over creation as far as you can see and think, man, there is a mighty God who just spoke all that into existence. Look at it. You can't look at the beauty of creation and look up into the stars in the sky. And the Bible says God made the stars also. Oh, and then by the way, he gave them all names. So creation declares there's a God to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed to everybody. I'll tell you another way God reveals himself is through this book. The Bible is the inspired word of God. The Holy Spirit inspired it to be written. It is the written word that reveals the living word, Jesus Christ. If anyone has ever heard the Bible preached or shared or spoken, or they've ever read it, they are without excuse. Why? Because this book talks about God. It reveals God. You understand this. We understand this. God is so much higher than us that unless he revealed himself to us, we'd have no hope of knowing who he is. But he's revealed himself in creation and in his word. The greatest revelation of God to man ever is in the person of Jesus Christ. He took on human flesh and walked around on the planet. History validates that Jesus Christ was here. History, I'm talking outside the Bible, validates he was crucified on the cross and that he rose again the third day. Now men want to reject it. Why? Because if we admit Jesus was here and we admit he died on the cross and he rose again the third day, then we got to admit we're wrong about who he is. And man won't do that. For the same reason man comes up with evolution because if we admit God is the creator, then we have to admit everything else he said and man won't do that. That's rebelliousness. But God has revealed himself. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And today, finally, in John 6, verse 66, I think, says the Holy Spirit is in the world convicting and convincing men and women of sin. God himself is at work in the world today, applying it to men and women's hearts, convicting and convincing of sin so men and women might be saved. I would say to you, listen, if you're watching online or you're here today and you're not saved, you are without excuse. You cannot stand in front of God on judgment day and say, God, I didn't know. You cannot stand in front of God on judgment day and say, just a little more information and God, I would have come. God's gonna look back and say, look, I sent my only begotten son to die on a cross and the Holy Spirit's been dealing with you for 60 years. You are without excuse. You are without excuse. Don't let that happen to you. Don't stand before God one day and be without excuse. Come to Christ today. Be saved today. Be born again by faith in him. Now, then Isaiah moves into verse two and begins to talk about the first advent of Christ. Now he's prophesying about the coming of Christ. Notice how accurate he is. Look at verse two. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness 
And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now what Isaiah is doing here is he's describing the coming of Christ the first time. And he first says he's like a tender plant. We would, we would say he's like a twig. He's like a little shoot. And what, what's Isaiah saying? He's saying that he's coming up out of a dry ground, like out of a dry root. And what he's speaking of is the line of David. God told David in a Davidic covenant, it's your son, your seed is gonna sit on the throne of Israel forever. On 586 BC, when Babylonians came and destroyed, Israel, destroyed the nation, destroyed the, the city and destroyed the temple and took them all away captive, the Davidic line was lost. In other words, Israel didn't know who was still supposed to be the king. They're in captivity for 70 years. They come back, they have some guys on the throne and basically from there till the first uh, of the New Testament through the intertestamental period, that 400 years, by the time you get to the New Testament, we know biblically that, that both Joseph and Mary were in the line of David, but nobody was paying attention. It looked like David's line was a dried up root. It looked like it was a dead tree. It looked like it had no life, but what did God do? Where God is, there's always life. And I'll tell you something else, God the Father never lost track of who was in the line of David, okay? And so Jesus is born into the world of the line of David. It looks like a little green shoot coming up out of a dead root. What a description. Isaiah 700 years before says, man, it's gonna look like it's all over. It's gonna look like the line of David is gone, but no, God's gonna send someone, the Messiah, who's gonna come up like a, a tender shoot. He's gonna be like a little twig. And then he said, Jesus, when he came the first time would have no form or comeliness. What that means is the first time Jesus came, he came as a suffering servant. Jesus Christ is God. He sits on the throne in heaven and all of his glory and majesty and the angels worship him. And the cherubim and the seraphim circle the throne and they worship him. But that's not how he came to the earth. If Jesus would have showed up here in all of his majesty and glory, the world would have melted away. But he didn't, he veiled it in human flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary. And he came here with no outward manifestation of who he really is. And he did that so that he could serve us and die on the cross. So he came with no majesty, no glory, no outside popularity. There was nothing in the ministry of Christ that would draw the masses to follow him. Sometimes when Jesus would do a miracle, and we talked about this in our Bible study class, he would do a miracle and he would heal somebody and he would say, don't tell anybody. Don't you find that interesting? Like, hey, I know I just healed your blindness and now you can see for the first time ever in your life, but don't tell anybody. That didn't always work out because they ran out and telling everybody, I can see, I can see. Why would Jesus do that? Why would he say, hey, did this miracle for you? Don't go tell anybody. Because Jesus did not want the world to follow him as a miracle worker or somebody who could feed them or somebody who could deliver them from Rome. He wanted people to follow him because he's a savior. He wanted them to follow him with their heart, not with the things they wanted in the world. So the first time Jesus came, he didn't do, he didn't, he didn't do anything outwardly to try to draw people to follow him. Now we both know, we all know, if Jesus would have wanted to ascend the throne of Israel and kick Rome out when he was here, he could have done it. He could have spoke the word. I mean, he's God, but that's not why he came. And I'm thankful he didn't do that because I needed him to go to the cross and so did you. I needed him to go to the cross. I needed him to die in my place because if he hadn't died in my place, I'd have to pay for my sin and so would you. 
So Jesus came to, with, with no form or comeliness, nothing that would draw people. His ministry was marked by these things. Humility, humility. He walked humbly. It was, it was marked by service. It was marked by suffering. It was marked by death. It was marked by redemption. Think about the little group that hung around with Jesus, his, his inner circle, his 12. What was that little rabble made up of? Bunch of fishermen and a, and a publican, a tax collector who got saved. Now, people in the world of that day would look at that crowd around him and go, what a bunch of losers. Man, they're, they're, listen, they're nobodies in the world. It isn't like Jesus went to the temple and said, oh, man, I need the high priest and I, need, and I need 11 of your best priests to come be my center group. Then the world would have said, wow, man, he surrounded himself with, with the religious elite. He's, he's, he's got himself surrounded with the religious aristocracy of the day. No, Jesus saved a bunch of fishermen and saved a tax collector and made them his main men. And that group of men changed the world with the gospel. You see, Jesus didn't come uh, making a name for himself. Can we understand today that when we point people to Jesus, it's not attractive to the world. It's not attractive to the world. Jesus is still not attractive to the world today. You know why? Because they don't fit the world's mold. What's the world about today? And churches that go down this error uh, do great disservice to people. The world today is about the world. The world today is about themselves. It's about stuff. It's about money. It's about fame. It's about power. It's about prestige. It's about doing whatever I want. It's about enjoying the pleasures of this life, satisfying all the temptations of the flesh and, in, and indulging all the things I want. And when you walk up to me and say, no, look, that stuff will destroy your soul forever. You need Jesus. The world's not interested for the most part. Why? Because Jesus don't fit their mold. You know why the religious leaders rejected Jesus? He didn't fit their mold as a savior, as a Messiah, as a king. No, he came the first time nondescript. He came the first time as the suffering savior. Guess what? He's not coming back that way. He's not coming back that way next time. The next time Jesus comes back, he's coming back as the conquering king. He's coming back in all of his glory and all of his power and all of his majesty. And those who have rejected him will be sorry. But our job in the meantime is to keep telling them. Now notice what Isaiah said in verse three. Here's the response of the people in his day. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Isaiah said of himself and of his, of his people in that day, he said, we have despised God today. Reason we're going into captivity. And when Jesus comes, the people will respond the same way. They will despise Jesus. They will abandon him. They will reject him. Do you know why the people of Jesus' day rejected him? Same reason people reject him today. They did not see the need. Didn't see the need. I would say the number one reason why most people won't get saved when I share the gospel with them is they don't think they need to be saved. Don't see the need. I say, hey man, we're all sinners. And they'll say, no, no I'm a pretty good person. No, I'm pretty good. Well, what do you mean I'm pretty good? Well, you know, I do more good than I do bad. And, and one day I've had, listen, verbatim. I told my son one time, my son, Nathan, my oldest boy, 
we were going out visiting one time, walking in a neighborhood, and I and I had done some I had done some evangelism training with a group of guys, and I told my son I said when we go out there here's what people are going to say I said we're going to talk to them we're going to tell them about Jesus and they're going to say no, I'm a pretty good person and I don't need Jesus the first guy we talked to my son and I walk along I start talking to a guy hey man I'm a pastor from Oakley Baptist Church you know you go to church anywhere no no well we'd like to invite you to come and and what do you think about Jesus and we start talking about Jesus I said man look Jesus died for your sins on the cross. The next words out of the guy's mouth is, man, I'm a pretty good person. I don't, I don't really think I need to be saying my son's looking at me like, what are you, a mind reader? I said, no. No, I just read the Bible. You know what? People, people don't think they need Jesus. They, they, they tell me all the time, well, you know, I don't, I don't really think believe in all that getting saved stuff because, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm, what's their problem? What, what are they doing? They are measuring themselves against the wrong standard. You know who they're measuring themselves against? Their neighbor. Their neighbor kicks the dog and so they think they're better because they don't kick their dog, all right? Or their neighbor, their neighbor uh, did something, you know, got arrested or something. They go, well, I never did that, so I'm better than my neighbor. Well, you might be better than your neighbor, but you ain't better than Jesus. And Jesus is how you get into heaven, okay? So unless you measure up to Jesus, you're still in a whole lot of trouble. You're still not going to get there. People in Jesus' day didn't think they needed him. Man, we don't, listen, we don't need a Messiah like that. We need a Messiah who's going to run the Romans off and make us a great nation. Well, what they don't understand is he's going to do that. Just not right then. What they needed then was a Savior, somebody to forgive their sin and die on the cross for them, and they rejected it. People still reject Jesus the same way today. They don't want a suffering Savior. Jesus doesn't fit their religious mold. The philosophy of today is, oh, we're all going to the same place. We're just getting there different ways. Uh, no and no. No, we're all not all going to the same place, okay? And number two, we ain't all getting there the same way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. He's it. That's pretty restrictive, which is what drives the world crazy. Because we say to them, look, you can't be saved unless you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. They say, you Christians are too restrictive. No, it's not us. Talk to God. He said that's the way, and you're not getting there unless you come by Jesus. But the world rejects just as in Isaiah's day, despised, rejected. Listen, Jesus was acquainted with grief. Think about that, acquainted with grief. What does that mean? He understood suffering. He wept by the graveside of his friend. He understood what it was to see the weakness of humanity, and it broke his heart. He hung on a cross and took my sin and yours on himself and became sin for you and me. He took our sorrows. He took our pain, our suffering. He was acquainted with grief. He knew exactly what he was doing. Now, the vicarious suffering is described in verses four and five very quickly. Look at this. Isaiah describes that. He says, surely, now remember, 700 years. What a description here. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You know what Isaiah is saying? As Jews, we saw Jesus hang on the cross, and we thought he was getting exactly what he deserved. We thought he was such a blasphemer that God was judging him. Well, that's something, isn't it? As Jesus hung on the cross, dying for the sin of the very men who were crucifying him, they thought they were doing God a favor. Verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. 700 years before Jesus came down on the cross, 
Isaiah said this of his vicarious suffering. Number one, he took our griefs and sorrows. He took our pain, our, our suffering for sin. As Jesus hung on the cross, he took our eternity in hell upon himself and bore it and paid it so that you and I can be free from it. Not only did he take our griefs and sorrows, but he was wounded for our transgressions. Transgression is another word for sin. We have transgressed the law of God. And when you break the law, there's always a penalty. Break God's laws, there's a penalty. The wages of sin is death. Jesus took that penalty. Our transgressions, he was wounded for them. And then it says, by his stripes were healed. By his beating, by his whipping. Now, some people will say, well, you know, that means there will be no physical sickness. We're going to be healed of everything. That's not what that means. Physical sickness in the world is a result of sin in the world. This healing right here, by his stripes we're healed, is spiritual healing. It is being forgiven of sin. By his stripes, by his suffering, by his death on the cross, we can be healed of the curse of sin. We can be forgiven for all who come by faith. And then finally, let me close with this. Who needs to be saved? We look at the world and say, man, Jesus is the Savior, come. Who needs to be saved? The world will tell you, I don't need to be saved. I'm a pretty good person. I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, look at verse six. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Apostle Paul would say it this way in the New Testament, for all have sinned, I'm short of the glory of God. For there is none righteous, no, not one. We all need a Savior. We all need Jesus. Like sheep, we've gone astray. We've forsaken God and gone our own way. We've pursued the world. We've pursued our own course in life. We do the things we want to do. Solomon warned in Proverbs 16, 25, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I watch the news sometimes. I can't watch it much. It makes my blood pressure go up. Maybe you can watch it and it's okay. I can't. And I'll tell you what bothers me about it. I see men and women who are trying to solve problems that they're not qualified to solve. And I don't mean that by any slight on any political party because it, it makes no difference to me if you're Republican, Democrat, or Independent, or started your own party, I don't care, okay? But every man and woman that I see who's trying to deal with the world's issues has no clue what they're doing. You, you know why they have no clue what they're doing? It isn't because they're not smart. It isn't because they're not intelligent or educated or, or have a track record of being successful in business or whatever. They have no clue what they're doing because they're trying to deal with a sin problem and they themselves are lost. They're trying to deal with sinful humanity without any understanding of the God who controls all of life. And so they are trying to deal with problems and come up with solutions that are not gonna work. Why? Because they've not asked God and they've not looked in his word. Listen to me, listen to me. We can't, we can't deal in society with an issue of of people hating one another and killing one another when we devalue the sanctity of life and kill a million babies a year in the womb. 
Because what are we telling society? Well, human life isn't really that valuable anyway. We can't deal with the issues that need to be dealt with. Why? Because we've all, like sheep, gone astray. And we're all separated from God. And there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof are the ways of death and destruction. Here's the end of the, of the process. Jesus came here the first time and took our sin and guilt upon himself and died on the cross. And he paid for it. So that we can come to him in prayer and say, Lord, I believe who you are, that you are God. And I believe that what you say about me is true. I'm a sinner. I'm not even close to good. I don't even know the zip code of good. I don't, I'm, I don't even have anything in me good. I'm completely undone. And so I need you to save me. And I want you to do that. And you know what? If you come to God that way, with a humble heart, willing to confess. Listen, you don't have to understand everything about the Bible. Man, I read this. I don't understand. The Bible is deep. It's a well you never get to the bottom of. And yet the thing that you need is so simple, a child can understand it. We are all sinners. And without Jesus Christ, we have to pay for our sin and the eternal lake of fire, and you're never going to get out of there. Come to Jesus now while you have opportunity. Jesus came as a suffering servant so that the world could be saved. Very few are paying attention. Very few are paying attention. Would you pay attention today? Would you hear what God the Holy Spirit is saying to your heart? Would you pray to receive Christ today? If you're here and you're lost, would you pray to receive Christ? If you're watching online, would you stop right now, wherever you are, pull off the side of the road, whatever. shouldn't be watching this driving your car anyway. But if you're listening to it on the, on the podcast, pull over. Ask Jesus to save you today. Would you do that? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for coming the first time as a suffering servant. Lord, you could have called down innumerable hosts of angels and destroyed the world. You could have climbed down off that cross when they taunted you. You didn't have to stay up there. You didn't have to die for our sin. God, you said, Jesus, you said that you laid your life down. No man takes it from you. You give it. You gave your life so that we could be saved. God, there's not a lot of people listening. We, like Isaiah, can say, Lord, who has believed our report? Who's hearing us? God, help us to be committed to share no matter who hears. God, I pray you would open hearts and minds of the lost so they might be saved. God, help us as we move toward Easter and celebrate the resurrection to understand that before the resurrection, before the victory, there was the suffering, the suffering on the cross. Save those who need to be saved today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. If I can pray with you or help you, you come on the first verse.